This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're talking about China's rise and the future of geopolitics. From the outside, China can look like a superpower going from strength to strength. In fact, Beijing can seem ready to use its technology, its wealth, and its power to export its autocratic model of government far and wide. But inside, the government is beset by many problems and contradictions and pushback, as evidenced by the hundreds of thousands of protesters who have taken to the streets in Hong Kong in recent days. In fact, it could be even millions. So how do we understand what's going on in China, what it is aspiring to in the world, and how the U.S. should respond? To help us unpack these issues, I'm joined by Jessica Chan-Weiss, an associate professor of government at Cornell University. She also has a terrific new essay in the print edition of Foreign Affairs titled, A World Safe for Autocracy, China's Rise and the Future of Global Politics. Welcome, Jessica. Great to have you on Deep Dish. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us for this conversation is Ali Wine, who is a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Welcome, Ali. It's good to have you here as well. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to get into what's happening with China. And of course, the news is dominated by the events of Hong Kong. But before we go there, I want to start with trying to get a sense of what China's broader ambitions are on the world stage as you see them. And um, Jessica, as I mentioned, you've written this really interesting foreign affairs piece, uh, which pushes back against the conventional wisdom, seeing as as China is this actor uh, that's intent on blowing up democracy, tearing down democracy, and the U.S.-led international order. Kind of to get us started, we'll unpack it more, but to get it started, kind of what's the nub of your argument there? The core of my argument is that China doesn't represent an existential threat to the survival of democracy or the U.S.-led international order. Uh, but although China has sought to make it easier for authoritarianism to survive alongside democracy, that's not the same thing as a determined effort to spread autocracy around the world. How do you see this differently than many people do? Many people look at um, things like the territorial expansion, creation of islands and military militarizing those islands, the uh, buildup of military capabilities, the Belt and Road Initiative um, of investment throughout um, throughout uh, the world. Um, as really driving for, as well as supporting uh, authoritarian uh, regimes in various ways. Um, Why is that not evidence that China is actually has an agenda of trying to transform the world in its image? In my view, the Chinese Communist Party is really focused on securing its own position at home and advancing China's interests abroad. And that it's worked really pragmatically to uh, try to diffuse threats to its rule and concentrating on that at home. And then also worked quite flexibly with uh, regimes of different stripes, both autocracies and democracies, and advancing its interests overseas. And, uh, you know, by and large, it is acting like uh, many other rising powers have, um, but that it's not guided by sort of a messianic ideological mission of, of transforming the character of other states abroad. They're really much more focused in a very self-centered way on making sure that the Chinese Communist Party survives um, at home and that they uh, extend their influence overseas and diffuse potential threats to their rule. So before we bring 
Ellie into this, uh, this part of the conversation. What would be an example uh, that you would point to of where China is being misinterpreted, where um, instead of uh, really trying to drive that big overturn, it, it's more interested in its internal uh, survival and legitimacy of the Communist Party? You know, I think that uh, you know the essay in Foreign Affairs goes through a number of different issue areas, and it uh, you know looks, for example, at China's behavior in international institutions, where it has, along with Russia, used its uh, veto power to um, you know advance its own ideas about human rights and block international interventions that would force governments uh, to end humanitarian abuses at home. But over time, China has also uh, you know, work to use its uh, power to get so-called rogue regimes to behave a little bit better, and in, in some cases has you know voted along with uh, Western states for international sanctions and referring dictators to the international uh, criminal court. So, for example, uh, you know, in 2011, um, China surprised many um, observers by voting for sanctions against Libya. Uh, and referring to the dictator Gaddafi uh, to the International Criminal Court. And even on Syria, where it had learned some lessons from its experience in going along with international intervention in Libya, China was more um, selective in using its veto, um, you know, not wanting to endorse resolutions that might threaten uh, regime change, but nonetheless, uh, you know, supporting international uh, intervention. And so in this case, as in others, it's, uh, you know, China's behavior isn't quite as black and white uh, in terms of supporting authoritarianism uh, and uh, resisting international efforts to, uh, you know, promote human rights on the ground. So, Ali, I'm interested in how you see it. I mean, as, as a person who's not a China hand, who's just watched the, the kind of U.S. position toward China develop, it was, you know, going from a, a attitude of all we do have to do is engage and they will become a you know, liberal economic and, and political uh, country just like we are to a flip, very hard flip that I think Jessica's, you know, described pretty well about what China is about. How do you see um, what China is trying to accomplish and what's motivating it uh, as it acts in the world? I largely agree with, with, uh, with Jessica's assessment. I think that China, at least as of yet, uh, China has not evinced a, on the ideological front, I don't think that China has evinced a kind of a missionary proselytizing zeal uh, aiming to inculcate its ideology, uh, ideology in the way that the Soviet Union did during the Cold War. Uh, and uh, while while China certainly is pursuing an ambitious foreign policy, uh, it hasn't yet manifested a desire to replace the United States or displace the United States as the underwriter of a global order. Uh, I think that China can plausibly envision and and may well be working towards the establishment of a of a kind of unified Eurasian economic zone at which it would sit at the center. Uh, but if China were to, if China were to assume the role of, say, a global policeman, or if China were to uh, were to undertake the types of responsibilities that uh, tend to attend uh, a superpower status, I suspect that it would end up diverting a lot of resources towards the provision of global public goods that it would that it would, it would prefer to allocate instead towards charting a more stable socioeconomic trajectory at home. So, so I agree with Jessica's assessment, and I think it's important. Uh, I think it's important to make a distinction between pragmatic adjustment and deliberate design. And, and one of the 
what I believe is one of the best features of Jessica's analysis in her foreign affairs essay is that in analyzing different initiatives of China, whether it's the the Belt and Road Initiative, um, China's export of uh, certain surveillance equipment to authoritarian regimes, Jessica makes the point that we should distinguish between aspects of Chinese foreign policy that are that are incremental, that are that are uh, somewhat incidental to its policy, and that China is adjusting over time, versus China that has a kind of a 100-year plan or some long-standing plan, and that all of these initiatives it's pursuing are part of some very carefully thought-out uh, uh, long-standing strategy. So I, I think let's, we should distinguish, as Jessica does in the essay, distinguish between incremental adjustments and pragmatic adjustments as opposed to long-standing deliberate designs. So I, I want to take up the the point, another pick up another point from Jessica's article, where um, you talked a bit about whether or not people, whether or not other countries and other peoples would even be interested in the in the Chinese model. I think one of the things the United States has typically prided itself on, you know, the whole soft power debate, is that, that there's a lot of attraction going on. Um, how do you view the attractiveness of uh, of the Chinese model in other parts of the world? First and foremost, uh, the Chinese Communist Party is trying to um, defend its model as one that its own people can believe in, uh, and that uh, you know they want to really push back hard against the idea that you know China um, sort of is inevitably headed toward uh, sort of some universal liberal model, and that the you know the fall of the Communist Party is inevitable. So there's been a, a fair amount. Uh, of government and party investment in the idea of, um, you know, the Chinese dream, um, a lot of ideological rhetoric and propaganda, but this is primarily oriented at, I think, shoring up the Chinese Communist Party's rule at home, and it's um, not really one that the Chinese leadership has put forward as uh, a model for China to export to others for others to copy, and so, oh, and when you when you look closer at you know China's so-called model, it uh, really has rested on a fair amount of pragmatic flexibility and experimentation, rather than any particular um, orthodoxy. And, and politically, the, the Chinese uh, Communist Party has, you know, experimented and been quite opportunistic, fusing uh, elements of capitalism and, you know, sometimes celebrating, but other times rejecting more traditional Chinese philosophies like Confucianism. So I want to take us from the big geopolitical level where it's been a fascinating conversation to turn to the news of the moment, which is what's been going on um, in Hong Kong and the, the, the public uh, protest against um, uh, uh, the potential, uh, potential new law to allow easier extradition to mainland China. Um, I, I want to engage you on this, Jessica, because you've written quite a bit about um, protests and uh, how protests can start on one topic and move uh, to become something else, and I guess with all of us, you know, having recently uh, recalled the thirtieth thirtieth anniversary of Tiananmen Square, how do you view what's going on in in uh, Hong Kong and its significance? I think Hong Kong shows us again how difficult it is for um, a illiberal government to manage popular protests. 
because if you let them go, uh, they can gain strength. But if you use repression, that can also backfire and increase, uh, you know, public distrust of the of the regime. In this case, the the local. Uh, not democratically elected Hong Kong government and sort of by association um, Hong Kong's backers in Beijing. And I think that the fact that the the Hong Kong government has suspended the extradition bill um, suggests that the Chinese leadership and in conjunction with the Hong Kong government is more interested in diffusing the situation at the moment than showing resolve. And I think that's a, a tactical climb down that actually, you know, could bodes well, uh, you know, and certainly I think, um, you know, avoided um, an even messier uh, situation. And there's been a lot of reporting that this is sort of a big chink in, you know, she's armor and, you know, represents sort of, you know, some kind of really huge concession. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that there's a lot of room here. I mean, Beijing has over the past several years repeatedly, shown its willingness to curtail Hong Kong's autonomy. And ironically, I think those harsh tactics in the past mean that today, you know, Beijing has a lot of uh, room to show flexibility now without sacrificing its reputation more broadly. So, um, you know, again, it's, it's quite different to have protests of this magnitude in Hong Kong than it would be across the border. By and large, mainland Chinese citizens know very little about what's going on in Hong Kong, and what little they know it's being framed by the propaganda authorities in China. So, you know, I think the Beijing, the government in Beijing's greatest fear is that protests in Hong Kong spill across the border, but... Uh, you know, so far at least they've been able to hold that wall. You know, they've invested so much in the mechanics of, of censorship and, and their control over the media that I think that for now that gives them a fair amount of uh, more, it gives them more flexibility than I think one might have expected uh, to show at least some flexibility in Hong Kong. So the scale of the uh, mobilizations have has, has been striking to people, and the fact that they were sustained even even in the first kind of um, adjustment by the by the government policy. Um, what are the trajectories you see playing out here? Are people going to go back uh, home feeling that this threat has been put aside, or are there uh, should we expect a, a different kind of pathway? If anything, it seems that the climb down has emboldened protesters uh, in Hong Kong who are you know, dissatisfied with the idea of the bill being suspended rather than put aside entirely. And the very, uh, there's been a great deal of, uh, sort of upset with the leadership of Carrie Lam. And so I think that you'll, we'll continue to see a demands for her resignation and the abandonment of that extradition bill. One thing I think that is um, quite interesting and, and potentially quite important to Beijing thinking here is how voters and politicians in Taiwan are viewing the unfolding drama in Hong Kong. And it's that linkage, I think, that gives Beijing more incentive to handle um, the situation in Hong Kong more delicately as they don't want it to, you know, impede their objectives vis-a-vis Taiwan and the idea that 
one country, two systems um, in Hong Kong could also be a model uh, for Taiwan. So, Ali, I want to bring you in in terms of U.S. policy. Uh, President Trump is known for tweeting all kinds of things. Um, uh, what has the U.S. policy position by the president or others been during this period? And um, what do you believe the most constructive thing the U.S. could do uh, in the face of these protests? So the, the, the United States finds itself in a in a difficult position. I think it's I think it's imperative for the the United States to stand with individuals who are who are expressing their rights and and are. Uh, expressing their freedoms and our, and I think what we're seeing in Hong Kong is very inspiring. I think you were, you were referencing the scale of the protests earlier. I think the the figure, at least, of the organizers of the protests have put out. I, I think something like upwards of two million people have participated in the protests, and that's that's over twenty five percent of Hong Kong's population. Uh, I think that as for and, and so we have to balance on the one hand demonstrating solidarity with uh, with Hong Kong. But recognizing the demonstrating solidarity with uh, the protesters in Hong Kong doesn't mean uh, or is, is not mutually exclusive with uh, taking a more nuanced approach towards uh, China and that's and, and a nuanced policy towards China, which, which Jessica really you know, lays out really well in her essay. And, and so I would say in terms of you know, strategy, before we do strategy, we have to diagnose the China challenge accurately. One of my, one of my concerns about discussions of China in, in Washington, and just in the United States more generally, is that they tend to veer between equally, I would say, equally unhelpful extremes. So uh, at one end of the spectrum, there are observers who believe that, well, perhaps the end of history didn't arrive, just, you know, hasn't arrived just yet, but that in due course it will arrive because China's internal contradictions are far too, a far too great in number and severity. Uh, China is due for a hard landing at some point, and that we just have to we have to let time uh, take its course and that China will collapse or experience some very serious convulsion. And that type of understatement of the China challenge induces a sense of complacence. At the other extreme, though, and I think we're now starting to, to air more on this side, is portraying China as this kind of inexorably resurgent juggernaut, uh, a juggernaut that uh, that hews to 100-year plans or 10-year plans at a minimum and is a strategic grandmaster and is essentially invincible. And as, as Jessica demonstrates in her essay, and I think as is becoming you know, clearer, and, and the Hong Kong protests are a uh, demonstration of this reality, but China faces a number of very severe uh, liabilities and weakness, competitive weaknesses both at home and abroad. So domestically, uh, China has to contend not only with you're dealing with a burgeoning middle class, it also has to deal with uh, increasingly restive uh, populations elsewhere. So whether it's dealing with protesters from Tibet, uh, protesters obviously from Hong Kong, whether it's uh, dealing with the situation in Xinjiang where upwards of a million individuals have been forcibly detained in re-education camps and the the abuses in Xinjiang have really been a, a black eye, have given a black eye to Beijing. They're eliciting more and more attention. So China not only faces difficulties with with subduing domestic populations, it faces a very bleak demographic outlook. It has few, if any, genuine external allies. Um, it has uh, it has a very unstable geography. Uh, so China is bordered by 14 countries, 
some of which are very politically volatile, uh, and others of which are very confident, capable, uh, militarily and economically capable democracies. And so if China believes that, or, or the United States should not assume that China basically is on some linear, uninterrupted trajectory towards assuming primacy in the Indo-Pacific and ultimately displacing the United States. The, you know, China faces a number of, of hurdles both at home and abroad. So if we, if we right-size the China challenge and if we recognize that China is not some strategic grandmaster that has a number of vulnerabilities, one, we focus more on swimming our own race, as I was trying to suggest earlier. We focus more on investing in our unique competitive advantages. We also work very assiduously to, to cultivate uh, a coalition. And again, not a coalition of countries to contain, but a coalition of countries that collectively can push back on some of China's authoritarian practices and some of its predatory economic practices. So one, focusing more on investing uh, at home uh, in restoring the power, uh, restoring the luster, I should say, of, of the democratic idea, uh, reinvesting in our alliances, swimming our own race, uh, competing with China where we believe that China is impinging upon our vital national interests, but identifying areas of cooperation, uh, of which there are many. And and I would say also eschewing, uh, uh, eschewing the kind of the recourse to analogy. I, I think that analogy, we really have never faced a competitor such as China. It, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily complicated competitor, and I find that it's it's unhelpful to say that we are revisiting the 1930s or that China is of an analog or a successor to the Soviet Union. I think that the more that we the more that we invoke those analogies, which I think are analytically misguided, uh, the more I, I feel ironically we betray a sense of anxiety about the reality that we don't have a playbook for dealing with China. But we need a surge of strategic imagination to forge a new playbook in dealing with China, and we need to bring in partners. We need to invest more in ourselves at home. Uh, and we need to to stop looking to the past for or relying too heavily on the past for guidance and instead uh, forge a a new dynamic uh, playbook so that we can achieve that long-term modus vivendi that I was referring to earlier. So, Jessica, um, what would you encourage our, our listeners to take away from this, this conversation? I'd agree then with Ali that Successfully competing with China will require a more precise diagnosis of Beijing's motives and intentions, and that this leap to um, borrowing from um, previous uh, this leap to borrowing from previous historical analogies uh, tends to distort more than it clarifies the challenge um, that we face, and that in particular. Um, you know, there are many areas in which the United States and China can work together to address common problems, particularly um, with climate change. And under Xi, the Chinese leadership has uh, sort of expressed a desire to lead more internationally. And when that leadership doesn't conflict with democratic principles, Chinese leadership, I think, should be welcomed. Um, and welcoming Chinese leadership on areas where there are complementarities between U.S. and Chinese interests would also um, and appeal to those within China uh, who seek um, change uh, within, rather than alienating um, the 1.3 billion Chinese by proclaiming, um, as some U.S. officials have, a whole-of-society threat from China. And that sort of exaggeration of the competition and the danger that China presents, I think, 
uh, could lead us um, to a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's a good place to conclude this conversation. Jessica Chen Weiss of Cornell University and author of A World Safe for Autocracy, China's Rise and the Future of Global Politics in this current issue of Foreign Affairs. Thanks so much for being on Deep Dish. It was great to be here, and thanks so much for having me. And Ali Wine of the Rand Corporation, and let me just cite one of his publications in which he lays out the dangers of uh, analogy, thinking by historical analogy. Uh, He's got a terrific piece in the national interest called Can America Remain Number One? And that's from uh, mid-February 2019. Ali, thanks so much for being on Deep Dish as well. Thanks so much for having me, and, and let me reiterate by saying what a what a pleasure and an honor it was to appear alongside Jessica. Uh, everyone should uh, read her essay in the new issue of Foreign Affairs. It's really a fantastic piece of work. Could not agree more. Thank you both. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a moment to tap the share button and send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests follow-up questions to anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who express them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Our audio engineer for this episode is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.